I'm getting all fired up. I'm all fired up and lonesome. Welcome to a very special episode of Fire Up. My name is Chris Gale. I am without my regular co-host, Dennis Carnahan. It can only be said that Dennis is on assignment. Let's leave it at that. But thankfully at the controls is the pants man himself, otherwise known as Redfern Pat. And we have an extraordinarily special guest joining us on Fire Up today for this special episode. Now, we investigate the intersection on this show between art, music, science, and rugby league. And we're going to be talking to someone who's become a very influential figure recently in rugby league, and as someone who's written a book called The Science of Belief. You may well know him as the coach whisperer. I know him as Bradley Charles Stubbs. Bradley, welcome to Fire Up. This interview has been a long time in the making, hasn't it? Yeah, well, um, it's funny. I don't trust media, so I just uh, let Chris wait three years and ten months for this interview. I don't need the press. (laughs) I go and get results. Is that because you accept that I'm no longer part of the media? Is that where we are now? No, I meet people and um, and then I got to get to know them because I got to find that they're trustworthy and they're going to tell the truth. It's like as many people that talk about me, but unless they know me or they've worked with me, really, how can they make a comment? They just use me as clickbait, which I've been used as clickbait a lot. So over that time, we've got to meet each other, spoke many times, had breakfast, uh, dinners and that stuff. And that's the reason here I'm here after three years and 10 months, and I'm not sure when I might do another interview. I hope we're hitting record on this one. Now, look, uh, we'll go into the time when we first met in a little while, but I did mention that you've written a book called The Science of Belief, and belief is often the currency in rugby league in terms of teams, coaching staff, fans, and so forth. In essence, what is the science of belief? Well, it's funny. If you actually, um, I think Albert Einstein 30 or 40 years ago always said, Everything's got energy. So every, every, uh, since I grew up, everything I looked at like a, a bottle or a tree or a table, whatever I looked at, where there's energy there. So it's actually, it's all physics. So in the subconscious mind, when you, when you fit it enough belief, your gut feeling works together. So when your gut feeling and your subconscious mind works together and it doesn't think about it, it creates an energy called natural pure energy. Right. That pure energy is like a light switch with a, with a dimmer on it. You can actually turn it up and turn it down. With the frequency, what it does, it actually releases oxygen to the blood that makes the blood run faster and it releases proteins to the brain. So actually what people don't understand is with the right words that are power words, the people don't even know what's going on, that they get this natural high from the right power words presented the right way that increases the frequency of the subconscious mind and they just get addicted to it. They don't even know what it is. I've had the luxury of reading your book. Are you able to share what some of those power words are? Well, expect to win. You know, I've got, you know, uh, my my logo out there is the coach which expect to win, done, done, done. People don't understand why I say done, done, done. Done, done, done seals the energy that goes to the universe. And when you say it enough times, it goes to the universe and the universe, your belief is the most powerful energy you have. The um, universe is the most powerful natural energy there is. The two together, miracles will happen. So you've got to create this cycle. When I say expect to win, I'm not saying I expect to win this. I'm saying I expect to win in everything. And with the done, 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 it releases it 
and it actually puts the seal behind it to the universe. So you just got to create this cycle. Many people start off in a job and they go, well, you know, I work that much and I only get paid anything. When you give and you give and you give and you give, eventually the cycle turns that you do less and you get paid more. I have to say, I've never received a communication from you on text or email that doesn't conclude with those words. So that's great to get that seal. Now, uh, you mentioned the, the term, and I did in my introduction, the coach whisperer. What was the origin of that? And what does it mean or signify to you? Well, it's interesting. A guy called John Davison, which is a journalist out of America, Jimmy, um, Bobby Danovac actually sent me a text and he said, the English press has nicknamed you the coach whisperer. I said, are you kidding? Don't give me that crap. <laughs> anyway, he found it and sent it to me and I went, what? Because I was working with Eddie Jones, it was out in the English press and they nicknamed me the coach whisperer and that's how the name came. So I went, wow, that's pretty cool. And that's how the coach whisperer come around. I didn't think about it. I wouldn't have been smart enough to think about something like that or someone else actually put it out there. That's what, that's what you need and you tapped into that energy, I guess. And what, this has been my gloss on it from some of the conversations we first had when we met. Take rugby league and the very particular position of head coach. So there's a lot of talk when head coaches inevitably get axed around the difference from an assistant coach stepping up into that head coach role and that there's so much, I guess, for want of a better term, management in a head coach role. I always said one of the interesting things about having met you and the relationship you've had with head coaches, which we'll chat about in a moment, I go, well, who does coach the coaches? Is there something in that? Is that that you relate to people who are in a very unusual position who of themselves appreciate the coaching that you provide? Well, when you're a coach, you're not just looking after the players. You're mm -hmm. looking after all the different grades underneath. You're looking after their partners, their mums and dads, all the sponsors, all the supporters and all that stuff. So a coach's position is, is a very lonely position. And people don't understand is that I look at it at above and I look at the energy of what's going on and these, these coaches need somebody that will relate to them, but I don't just relate to them. I, I keep them accountable right. of what they're doing. So if I see something out there, like I was working with a coach overseas and I told him, sent him a message, I read 140 pages a day of media and I go back and say, why is, your, why is your assistant coach out there like a Hollywood rock star? He's his assistant coach. Tell him to shut up and get him to go back to training. What the hell is this guy doing? The reason they become Hollywood rock stars is because they're positioning themselves for the next gig, which is taking their energy away from what they're supposed to do with the person that hires them is to friggin' win. And when they hire you, they're certainly not hiring a confidant or a yes man, are they? There's no yes man here. I'm the guy that turns around and I actually tell them, you know, it's time to look in the effing mirror. The problem's in the effing mirror. Unless you grow, your team won't grow and your, your leaders won't grow. So go and have a look in the effing mirror now. Do you lose some friends? Who cares? So if we go back to when we first met, which was by that uh, modern gimmicky thing called Twitter, where I think you may well have liked a photo I took in the wake of the Roosters winning the 2018 Grand Final and we connected on that basis. I guess 2018 in terms of the fact that you now have this public profile was fairly significant because that was the first year of your association with the Sydney Roosters. But 
that we're aware of. But how did you come to be in the public eye? What was the the story that got us there? Well, I saw you post something and I liked it. And then you followed me and then we spoke and I said, look, you know, I don't do interviews. And then over time, you know, I gave you a little couple of minutes and then I had to put you through the ringer. <laughs> so that's the reason it's taken three years and 10 months because to me it's like I don't care what people think of me. Mm. The people I work with, ask them their opinion. So to me it's like if you're going to interview me, let's do the truth. If you like it or you don't like it because I'm doing stuff right now that you think sport's big. Are you kidding? Sport is so tiny. When I can go, when I go out there and do what I'm doing in the medical industry and what I'm doing there, it's unbelievable. So it doesn't matter if you like me or you hate me. But you know what? Today, if you get one thing that makes you think, wow, you're on, you're on that destination to change your life forever. And I'm really keen to get into some of those broader issues that you cover. So we're going to start with rugby league and open up through sport and into these other fields that you describe. But let's start with the Sydney Roosters, which is really coincides with when you got in the public eye. On our show, and we were having this conversation earlier this morning, I said, we love the coaches' press conferences because there's always so much going on and there's comic potential and interesting things. And we were doing this show on a radio station called FBI at the time, and I was doing it with my colleague Stephen Ferris, and we're going, gee, Robbo is different this year in his press conferences because, you know, he had this reputation as a renaissance man, speaks his mind, but he was a little bit more elusive and a little bit more managed or direct in the messaging. Uh, I think we remember the time he referred to eyes up front door footy and we said, well, we hope the eyes up if you're going through the front door. But of course, it turns out that you were working with him. How did that come about and how was that relationship over those two amazing years? Well, that happened in um, December. I think it was December 17... Yeah, December uh, 17, 2017. So we're at, I was in Sydney with my wife, Cathy, and we're doing some business. And I said to Cathy, I'm going down to see Trent Robinson. And she knows that, you know, when I decide, I'll go down and meet him. So I'll go down to the office. He's not there. He's actually training. So I went there, suit and tie, dressed, little my diary where I write me 1%. And I stood there for an hour and 45 minutes, and I was just writing these little 1% down. After it, he came over and I took my glasses down and I said, Trent, Bradley Charles Stubbs, the coach whisperer. I thought I'd come down here and give you some 1% uh, to win the grand final. An hour and 45 minutes later, we finished the conversation. Before we knew it, uh, I knew it. At the training field, there was no one else. There was just Trent and I in the middle of the freaking grass. No one was there. Then we walked out of the car park for another 25 minutes and then we went to his office and I got a book out. And I wrote down on it, uh, 2018 grand final winning coach, Trent Robinson, done, 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 belief creates miracles. Funny story. I was down there for the week of the grand final and I said, Trent, you know, you still got my book? And he goes, yes, I got it right here. And he said, Bradley, can you bring it to the game? So he gave it to me to make sure it was brought to the game because coaches are very, very methodical of what they do. Yeah. They've all got their 
traditions of what they do. So with a coach, I've probably got maybe a one to two percent to work in because everything else is training, uh, structures, fitness, blah, blah, blah. So I get a little bit of one to two percent to work with. But to me, it's like, okay, so when you've got someone in the in the media, you look and go, well, when you talk about the op- they ask you about the opposition. You actually tell them about what you're doing because as soon as you talk about the opposition, let's look at it as money. Every time you talk about the opposition, you take money out of your pocket for your wife and kids and you give it to the opposition. What you're doing is you're transferring your energy onto them. So you never, ever talk about the opposition if they go blah, blah, blah. You go, you know what? The trainer was unbelievable. We had the great session this week. We're ready, to, you know, to take it on. So that was it. We lost half our content because Robbo would never refer to the opposition in his press conferences. Now, they're famously, and I think on your LinkedIn page, if I can refer to that, there is that photo with you and Trent after the win with the book open on that yes. page. That's, yes. That's an iconic photo, isn't it? Yeah, but people don't actually look at what was read in there, what was written in there. Well, they should just expand the photo yeah. because it's there. Because it's, it's, it's like... Belief, your subconscious mind only knows what you feed it. So you've got all the press, you've got all the social media, which is noise. So what you've got to do is you actually, you've got to cut the noise out and just see. So you might be here today and this podcast here will go around the world. I'm We're telling so. you, there's no energy in hope. I'm telling oh, you that's right, right you now. got me. That's my first right? error, 12 and a half minutes in. Yeah, like get back and read me book, The Science oh. of Belief, will oh, you? I'm so embarrassed. So here you are here. You look at a focus point out there of what you're going to achieve, excuse me, and you transfer, which is physics, the energy to that position. So when you look at it, i got a, I got a quote, is belief is a destiny in time just waiting to happen. So on game day, I call it the last round. People call it the grand final. My wife and I looking at the time, we go, okay, starts at 8 o'clock. Okay, by quarter to 10 or whatever it is, it's all done. Job done. So I'm the guy that you don't see, you know, like I might be somewhere and you might see me. I'll stay for the song, then I'm gone. Do you? I mean, that particular victory in terms of the job being done, the, the first half that the Roosters put on was amazing. There was the Luke Keery masterclass and it was in, of course, the context of Cooper's uh, scapula that was causing him a few issues. You get through that experience and it hadn't been since the Broncos in the early 90s that any team in the NRL had gone back to back. At what point did you again work with Trent in the year that became the repeat victory against, sorry about this, Dennis, the Canberra Raiders? Well, okay, let's go back to 18. So Trent and I, you know, we talk and I look at the reviews or what I see and I give him a review and I said, Trent, did you see the energy of Craig Bellamy? He says, no, Bradley, what is it? I said, it's great. His energy is changed by 1%. That 1% is going to transfer to the whole team. So they're going to lose a 1% on each player. So I got to apologize because the vision I had with Trent was to actually win three in a row. Right. So I got to apologize. 
I didn't get the third one, but there was a lot of change of energy. So after you win, there's all the coaches got inundated with thousands and thousands of people that the coach will actually think he's going to be the next prime minister or the president of America or Australia. <laughs> so then, you know, I'll look at the review and when I catch up with someone, I'll look and I said, hmm, I give it seven out of ten. And I'll have uh, two pages or two and a half pages of one percent that we can improve on. So to me, it's like I'm never happy. To me is when you win 50 nil, I give it a seven. My club doesn't get many sevens, I can tell you that much. Now at, at the end of that first I was gonna laugh on that one. Yeah, at, the, at, the, at the end of that first year, and then you go into this back-to-back situation, these one percenters. They're dynamic, I assume. So you're making observations that are one percenters that are very particular what you're seeing and, and experiencing, yeah? So I, I might see something in another team that we don't play that team for five weeks and I'll actually put it in my drive uh-huh. five weeks' time and go, there's a massive one percent that we can get a one percent on. And then what you've got to do is because when people win, they've already gone to achieve that. So how do you keep fine-tuning and turning the frequency up and so, because what I do is most people talk and they talk from the outside in. I talk from the inside out. So I get into people's hearts, body, soul, and their minds. I can meet someone and I get inside their soul because I've just got this thing that I do that the talents I got, everyone else has got the talents. When I work with people, I just teach them how to bring the talents out that society actually condition them that you can't do. So the only thing I do is I look at somebody and go, They've got the same talents as me. I actually teach them how to bring it out. Yeah, I think that's something that that I've noticed from the time that we spent together is that that's exactly what you're doing. It's not like you're doing something magic for them. You're actually liberating or unleashing or unlocking what they have inherently within themselves, correct? Yeah, I'm not the fairy godmother going, like, <laughs> golly, guys, you know, if I was a fairy godmother, I could make a freaking fortune. No, look, we'll, no we'll, we'll, I'm just the guy that goes, you're here. we got the same talents. Let me, you run off my belief and I'll hold your hand and I'll teach you to get those beliefs in yourself of what you can achieve. Right. Because society is bashing into everyone that you got to be a freaking loser. You don't have to be a loser. Take that to the bank. Just on 2018 when you went to that training session, you could walk into 16 training sessions at that particular point of time how do you connect and end up with Trent Robinson at that point in time because before I go there I already know I'm, I'm going to win a grand final in 2014 I met um, Michael Maguire I cold called him and in that meeting sit in front of a desk I stood up on a desk in front of him and said 2014 grand final winning team South Sydney Done, 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 done. First time I met him, like, that's what you do when you meet people, don't you? Of course you do. All right. Anyway, the story goes after that, you know, uh, we went and run four in a row and then he, they went to Cowboys. They went up and had a holiday and they got beat. Then they played the Titans. It was down the bottom. And then um, when somebody loses, I drive the Mack truck straight through through their subconscious mind. Full tilt down. I don't wipe their backside. I don't take any excuse. Anyway, he calls me because it takes him a while to get back up. 
And I said to him, you know what? I gave you the system, we followed the system. The problem's in the effing mirror. You didn't follow the system. I said, I'm prepared to die to win the 2014 grand final. Are you? He said, yeah. I said, well, if I'm prepared to die to win the 2014 grand final, I'll cut me left little finger off. And he said, so will I. So I told all my friends, they said, what are you going to do? I said, it's friggin' done. It's done. So we had a, a deal to cut our fingers off after round 16. You've got to remember, it was pretty easy to do that and won a grand final for 43 years. If you're going to go for it, let's go. Get over the line and listen to what I'm teaching. Let's go. <laughs> and I know Redfern Platt, as a South fan, is very grateful because Michael Maguire is the only coach in over 50 years to have been involved in delivering a premiership for South Sydney. Fortunately, this has been filmed. You have all your digits. I can confirm. Did you select the left, left pinky because it was your, not your writing hand? Yes, I did. You're a very clever man. Yeah. You must be a lawyer. <laughs> well, well, I trained, but they never let me practice, Bradley. I, being, you know, historically from the Balmain side of the West Tigers joint venture, you know, there's many reasons why Balmain and South don't get on. But I was... Who, who's, who's Balmain... Who are they, what sport are they in? Yes, yes, yes. R- rugby league. I'll, I'll let, let me the... just let me just go on that little trickle there. If you're going to hire a coach, put the trust and belief in him. Let him do their job, and the chairman and the CEO stay out of the freaking media because you're not freaking right Hollywood rock stars. You unsettle the freaking coach. So get him out of the freaking media and give the guy a chance to freaking succeed. Amen. Oh my goodness! If you want to be the coach, be the coach. Amen, amen, brother. <laughs> But I was at the 2014 Grand Final, happened to be in a section of the crowd which was primarily South Sydney. And no matter what you feel in terms of you know the, the rivalry of clubs, it was a transformative experience to be amongst people experiencing that joy after so long. Do you take anything from that? Do you focus on that? It's not what you're doing. You're, you're, you're somewhere else. I'm actually somewhere else. So when I work with a coach and I go to train or I go to – What's the warm-up or the captain's run the warm-up on the day or I'm in the sheds or I'm in the box? I come out of the game and my wife tells me the score because I'm actually working then looking at the game. People think that I'm there looking at the game. No, I'm looking at the energy that is in a box because the energy will transfer to the players of what's in the box. So I'll give an example. Recently... Uh, Eddie Jones played the uh, the Wallabies. Yes, the he third did. game. In that game, Eddie looked like he was going to have a heart attack. His eyes were popping out of his head. So when they show that screen on the big screen and the players see it, they look and they go, "Eddie's Eddie's leading us to war," and they just step up. Then they show the Wallabies coach, and you look and go, "Well, if he's writing a story at the moment, would he have enough ink to do a full stop?" No. So if the guy can't even produce a full stop and you've got a guy that's in the trenches going to war, who are you going to fight for? I want to talk about Eddie in a moment because I saw you present uh, by the agency of Jimmy Smith at North Sydney Rugby League Club uh, a few years ago and you said something very interesting there. But just to sort of finish our rugby league discussion, two things. First of all, we talked about fingers before. Now, I, as part of my community service order, uh, sit with a bunch of Roosters fans at games. A lot of them weren't there last night, by the way, but I certainly was as they beat the Broncos. And when I had the pleasure of meeting you for the first time, I you know, obviously shared with these guys 
you know, I've met the coach whisperer. I find he's got a, a lot of value to say. And of course, they all think that Trent Robinson will eventually be made a saint. You know, he's going to be beatified. And they tend to go, it's for these reasons, oh, we're not, uh, we're, they, it, it, for want of a better word, they seem to, if he made a contribution, it's marginal, it's not important to me. And, I, and they sort of can be dismissive of that. And you mentioned some people love you, some people hate you, which is better than not being thought of at all. But I go, and if you show it to the camera now, there are two premiership rings. Well, look, look, everyone's got their opinion. I totally understand. When people don't understand through logic what I do, they feel that the best way to do is attack me because they actually feel power. So for those people out there listening, have you got two of those as a present by from Trent Robin, the South Sydney coach? So doesn't that actually answer the question? And unfortunately, there's many people in the world that you don't have to be like that. You can be a winner. And because you don't understand something because you can't read through a book and it's logic, you don't need to waste all this energy to try to have a go at someone. Get a friggin' life. Be a friggin' winner. Go and buy me book of science and belief and get your act together, will you? Thanks, Trent. <laughs> now, now, when we were reflecting on Trent in that period that we were working with him and we said, oh, he's a little bit different in press conferences and he, he speaks very fondly of the relationship that he had with you at that time and what he got from it. But as I said, it was not visible particularly until it hit the papers. You then moved on and were involved in working with Kevy Walters, the Queensland origin coach. And I think after one interview uh, that he gave, uh, I think you said a press guy found you in, on holidays in Fiji and said, you're working with Kevy Walters, aren't you? So so Kevy was more transparent in terms of the messages. What, what was that relationship well, well, like? How did that go? Well, it's funny because I met Kevy uh, when my daughter was getting married. And the day before, and I saw those guys trying to win. Oh, that's interesting. Who's that? And Kevy's there. Anyway, I said, you know, you're going to win the um, State of Origin 3-0. And I just got into him. Anyway, it started from there. And then what happened was I started working with him. And I said, you know, you're a coach. You teach that. I teach belief. So the first game, we won. I didn't know until about four or six months ago that Kevy told me after they won where they weren't supposed to win that first game, Queensland Rugby apparently put him up in the penthouse suite. No coach has ever been in the penthouse suite. <laughs> so next minute he had all these good game people telling him how great he is. And then he stopped doing what I told him. Then he called me into the third camp and I said to Kevy, Kevy, I got the blame that you guys lost. I said, you know what? I get, I get based on – I get all my results is what I'm all about. Everything's about results. You still get your paycheck. Why don't you go out there and tell the frigging truth that you went off me programs for the second game and that's the reason we lost? I've, I've always said good game people need to be feared. There was a bet that you said you might share with us. You had a bet with Kevin? Oh, it's funny. The 2019, the last round, which was against Canberra Raiders, which people call the grand final, I was talking to Kevy that week and I said to Kevy, yeah, the Roosters will win the grand final. He said, they got no chance. <laughs> Canberra Raiders will win. They got freaking no chance. I said, you want to have a bet? And he piped up out of the phone like, you know, grabbed me around the throat. And I, and I said, yeah, okay. You want to have a bet? And he says, yeah. I said, okay. Canberra Raiders, Raiders win. I'll cut me two left and right little fingers off. 
when the Roosters won, you cut your left little finger off. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. When you challenge someone to cut a piece of their freaking body off, then you see how much belief they had. <laughs> so I still got him. He wouldn't take the bet. <laughs> well, I think that's probably fortunate for Kevin. Now, we mentioned, uh, as we, we'll just stick on sport for a little bit longer before we move on to other things and other areas, but uh, one of the higher pr- – and, of course, one thing that's not as really well known is you work with a lot of emerging people in sport, young people. I think you first – uh, were involved with surfers, which was your background, correct? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, going back, I worked with a girl called Lynette McKenzie's from Aruba. She won every amateur title in Australia. At that stage, she won two world amateur titles, one for the school and one outside the school. At that time, she was the only human ever, guys or girls, to win two amateur titles at the same time. Then I worked with uh, Nicky Woods in 87. I spent three weeks with him. He went to into his first pro event at 17 in 1987. He won Bells Beach, and he's still the youngest kid ever in the man's to win a world championship event. That's extraordinary. Yeah, and I just told everyone, Nicky Woods will win Bells Beach. And it's like, are you kidding? He's just turned pro. It's his first event. And he was 17. 17. And he rang the bell. Yes. So, Eddie Jones, when I was at that presentation, which was a – Wonderful evening. I think Colin Scotts was there, Nat Wood, who is fondly thought of in rugby league circles, and everyone was uh, very, very much focused on what you had to say. You talked about your working relationship with Eddie. One of the things that struck me about that, you'd actually never met the bloke, correct? Yeah, what happened was uh, after the World Cup, I said to my wife, I said, uh, I'm going to go and win a Six Nations. She goes, what's a Six Nations? I <laughs> did, said, Do you do that at breakfast or at lunch to your uh, team? <laughs> I just had this vision and I just said, I'm going to win a Six Nations. She said, what's a Six Nations? I said, I don't know. But apparently it's the biggest uh, rugby competition outside the World Cup. She said, who's in it? I said, I don't know, but I know England's in it. So we got on the Google search and we sent some emails and um, we got an email back the next morning from the CEO, uh, Ian Ritchie from um, uh, English Rugby to say, thank you very much. You know, well, look at this. Then we got an email three weeks later say we've sacked the coach, we put on Eddie Jones, we passed it to Eddie Jones. Five days later, Eddie Jones' ladies reached out and said, Eddie would indeed like to meet you. He doesn't know how to do FaceTime at the time in 2016 or uh, Skype or anything, so he rings me up and he says to me, so what are you going to do for me? And I told him, and next minute it's F and this, F and this. He's, he's, he's at me like a mongrel dog with a baseball bat. And I didn't back down because I know what I do. And, and Eddie's in England. I'm on the Gold Coast. And we're having this head-to-head. Anyway, so this is what I want. We sent it over and I woke up in the morning. And, um, I said, Kathy, we got an email back from Eddie already. She said, what's it say? I'm interested. What's the financial arrangement? Kathy goes, what else does it say? That's it. <laughs> so we sent it over. He said two days later, he said, the lawyers have been in contact with you. And that's how it all started. Then he come, he rung me three weeks before the Wallabies because I worked with Checker at the World Cup. And Checker, you know, he didn't know me. He was about to become the Prime Minister of Australia, getting second in the World Cup. And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll work with you, Eddie, against the Wallabies. There's one condition. Three F and nil. You understand? So that's how it happened. Come over here. The Wallabies, uh, sorry, England only ever beat the Wallabies three times in 117 years in Australia. 
So the press over in England was like, if England win one game, we'll call it a celebration because I worked with Eddie over there. We won the Six Nations Triple Crown and the Grand Slam. First time the Grand Slam be done for had uh, been achieved for 13 years in 100 and something years, 120 something years or whatever it was. It only ever been done three times. So when we won the first one, the media press over here was, the Wallabies will win 3-0. Then they go, oh, it's, you know, it's a fluke. Then we win the second one. And then the, the press over here is going, well, you, they're going to turn up. There's no way in the world it's going to be 3-0. Anyway, it was 3-0. But it was actually very interesting to see Michael Checker on the field when he spotted me sitting next to Eddie's wife. Got it's a, like you saw a freaking ghost. Is, is it the mental warfare, I think, that you might... Yeah, the mental warfare is that uh, if you can get into their head, so when the press happens, there's certain things that you say that the press will pick up in the social media and the opposition team and the coach will pick up. And if they think about that for one minute or one second, they're focused away from what they're going to achieve... Dilutes, you get one. Dilutes, you get a one percent advantage. Right, that, that, that's a, a critical delta. Now we're so reluctant to talk about rugby union on this show, but um, one thing that struck me about the relationship you said you had because of the time difference, Eddie would wake up, and you've sort of distilled what the press was saying into messaging that he would then stick onto and stay on point as far as how the English team was concerned. Okay, so I'd set me alarm for Eddie's time, seven, ma- seven minutes past six in the morning, I would send his expect to win program. That program I expect him to read every morning and every night. Seven minutes past six, I would actually analyse and give him a report of what's going on up to 140 pages of what's going on with the other team and the 1% that I could see. And then I'd say to him, say this, the next day to be the back page of the the sun or whatever, exactly what I gave him. Right, so, and, and that was like in that particular series, it was going, we're going to come over here and play, knock them down, drag them out football. 3-0. It, and, which the Australians hated to and hear. And what he said, he's going to stay for two weeks and uh, ex- uh, celebrate the glory of 3-0 victory. So... We've heard that you moved from the Wallabies to the English. And, of course, Eddie had a little contretemps with a Channel 9 employee at the end of the third game at the SCG where the word traitor was issued and Eddie fired up a little bit. Now, you're a Queenslander. You've worked with the Queensland Origin coach. Could there be any world in which you would work with the New South Wales coach in Origin? Well, that's funny. I got someone who's asked me in the last couple of weeks. I said, you know what? Depends what the universe says. Right, right. We'll wait with. I don't say I would. I don't say I wouldn't. But the whole thing about it is, you know, it's it's like when you work with someone like um, Michael Checker, and then you help them to go to the World Cup, and next minute they're going to be the Prime Minister of Australia. <laughs> and uh, Michael Checker actually took three years for me to sit down and do a review of the World Cup after we beat uh, Wales and England. I saw his players out there, social media, on the red wine and on the drink. And I said to him, wait on, you're the coach. He said, I didn't know about it. I said, are you kidding? It's all over the social media. What they can't wait a couple of weeks and win the World Cup and then have a drink. Yeah, game day people. So it took me over three years to sit down and do a review with him. He avoided me for three years. Wow. 
He's in the fashion game now, Checker, or something? I'm not sure. Now, last sports question, of course, and he's had a bit to do with rugby league in, from a kicking skills point of view, is Arnie, Graham Arnold. What was that relationship like and, and what do you, you see as his specific challenge taking the Socceroos to Qatar and the World Cup that's coming up? Well, I first met, I uh, had a meeting with the football manager and then he said, uh, Graham's here. So I met Graham. This is eight, ten months before I actually started working with him. And I explained him the story about uh, Michael Maguire and we're in the cafe over at the stadium and it's full and here I, here I am on a, ta- on, on a chair saying I'm standing on this chair meeting Michael Maguire and I'm giving him the, what I'd done. Anyway, when I walked away, he said, the football manager, who is that guy? That guy's freaking crazy. Who is he? So then one day I just said, oh, I called Graham Arnold. So I had his mobile. I called him on uh, Blocked and he picked up. He said, Bradley, I never pick up Blocked numbers. And I just started talking about belief, blah, blah, blah. And he said, I'm actually in my hotel room right now, sitting on my bed. I never take a block number and I'm talking to you. And we're about to have a game today. He's the first round of the FFA Cup. That's how it all started. And we only won four titles out of six. And it's funny how social media can be this blast of people that after we lost one game, and uh, they said, you know, people happen to go at me everywhere. And I'm sort of thinking to myself, because I don't respond to them. Well, we won four titles out of six. And your team hasn't even won one. But you're having to go at me? Like, <laughs> seriously, have you got a life? Like, go and do something for charity if you haven't got, if you've got so much time on your hands. Will you keep an eye on the Australians in the World Cup this year? Yeah, I sort of look and go, well, Grain should be going over there with the mentality to win. It's like if you look at some teams, after they make the grand final, they've achieved it. You want to go to the Mount Everest, but you want to get down. Most people go to Mount Everest and they don't get down and they die. You've got to get up and you've got to get back. Yeah. So because we're the underdogs, right, and because he's groomed so many kids, you know, I look and I go, go over there and expect to win. Expect to Pull the biggest upset in World Cup history. That'd be tremendous, wouldn't it? Um, I don't. I felt like I misled you because I've got one more sports question. We've got the Commonwealth Games on at the moment. There's part of it as women's T20 cricket. You work with the Pakistan under twenty women's no, team. No, Pakistan it? women's uh, cricket coach. And uh, the time I worked with them, I think they were six or eight. They come up to number four. Um, they actually, the coach got them expect to win uh, badges, uh, bands that they wore every game. And the girls used to say to them, like, you know, you know, this guy's very successful. Why is he trying to help us? And he said, well, that's a, the way he is. And Kathy and I would send our love and we'd done it as a uh, pro bono. And, um, and that story there, they actually were the first woman's team to ever win the sporting team in Pakistan. Pakistan cricket won it that many times, but I'll tell you a funny story on that. So there's one of the young ladies that she was the first lady to get picked in the uh, the big bash for the girls. Right. Anyway, she got a contract here. And while she's away, um, she gets a call from the doctors and said, 
your brother needs to have this medication. If he doesn't have this medication, we're going to have to cut his leg off. So the success they had here, he was, she was the first one to get a, uh, a big bash contract. And because of that money, she could pay for the medication to save her brother's leg. Now, there's another story of one of the girls that she decided she wanted to be a cricket player. Her brother and dad bashed her with a cricket bat. That function that you met us at, yep. we bought that cricket bat. We sent it to the coach to give it to the the, the young player that a mum and dad, uh, sorry, her brother and uh, dad bashed her with a baseball bat and said you can't play cricket. Now that family survive and their whole lifestyle is from the money they earn. Right, which it can sometimes be lost in this country about when you look at the comparative situation like a Pakistan, that the sport is a huge difference potentially for families and large groups of people. Well, I'll tell you another story. So when they're not competing on a uh, plane for the, the women's Pakistan cricket, they've actually got to practice. They don't give them balls and they don't give them stumps. I got videos that people have never seen when I release them of the girls making their own stumps so they can practice and then melting down the uh, plastic bags that we get in coals to actually make cricket balls to practice with because they don't give them the money. Or back then, they wouldn't give them the money to have equipment to train outside of when they're in camp. So when you hear about sporting people that get upset or something, I go, wow, wow, wow. So sport is where you're historically been best known for where you work, but you've already alluded to other fields of endeavour. Um, you've done work in both the education and the medical sector. Is that right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So we got um, we had a guy from... Um, Ipswich School, which called Bremer High School, reached out. And it's funny because he sent an email and he said, well, I'm the head of literature. Do you think what Bradley does could help literature? And it's funny because my wife read it and went, Bradley's dyslexic, right? And I can't read very well, but that doesn't matter because I've got my wife and she does all that stuff for you, me. I, I've met Kathy. She is an absolute delight. Yeah. An absolute so without delight. Kathy... I don't even know how to put money in a bag. I don't even know how to go to an airport. Kathy looks after all that and lets my energy run free. So we went up there and done a three-month program with the teachers. We taught them how to teach bullies to become leaders. And they had a rating out of nine. And we started there and it was from their last results, 4.2. Anyway, we done a three-month program and the next report come out they done seven. They said, we've never seen an increase like this ever. And the funny thing is I look and I go, well, with schools, wouldn't it be forefront of any education in the world, university or school, to actually teach kids belief? Belief? They teach them all this stuff, blah, 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 blah. But the, the most powerful thing that you can teach a human is, is belief. Then when you go back on the the medical side, you know, what do you want to know? I worked with I work with um, the Royal Women's Hospital Ramwick. The CEO is Donna um, um, 
Garland. Just let me just check that while I'm just there. And um, and then I work with a guy called Andrew Bissett. Andrew Bissett is a um, he's a a doctor that delivers babies of 42 years. He's actually known around the world. Yes, her name's Donna Garland. And Andrew, he's a maternity doctor that's known around the world as the baby whisperer. So, so you're brothers in arms, is that right? Baby whisperer working with the coach whisperer. The funny thing about it is there you've got medicine. And what I teach is physics. And it's interesting because you've got all these women that now are getting having cesareans. Mm-hmm. So you might have a lady that's had two cesareans, just got over cancer, the blood's not right, so they're not sure it's going to clot. There's over 10 doctors saying you need to have a cesarean. And with physics, which is science, joined with what Andrew knows put together, you see a mother have the first time a natural vagina birth that he says they could run a marathon after it. Because when a woman actually has a birth, a natural birth, they get a chemical reaction through the whole body that they feel complete as a woman. And, you know, the government at the present moment, what they should be doing is they should be investing billions of dollars to create the greatest maternity doctor hospitals in Australia. Why? Because without women, there's no economy. Unless you got babies, like this day and age, it's like um, if they want to have a baby, they can actually go and buy a sperm at the shop. And if they can't afford that, they can just put something on social media going, look, I'd like to get pregnant. 10,000 guys will come out of the woodwork. If we don't have women, we've got no economy. They should be investing tens of millions of dollars in this country to create the greatest maternity hospitals in the world because that produces kids that creates an economy. Sorry, guys, the women in time will have all the power because a man at the moment can't produce a baby. Look, I agree. I feel um, tantamount to irrelevant. Uh, Those people from the medical field that you work with, um, my layperson's experience of sometimes they can be quite conservative in mindset in terms of this is the way that I've learned. What 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 is it in the individuals that you've been able to work with that opens them up to the sorts of things that you've been talking about there? Well, they've got to have an open mind, mm-hmm. and then when they actually put something in practice of what I teach and go, wait on, that gave me a greater result in the birth. Then they actually, when they listen and they they put into practice one or two three times, then they go, wait on, this works. Like I got no university degree, but it doesn't mean I don't know what beliefs all about. Which is physics; it's science. Well, and I guess one of the things that we keep coming back to is what you're covering. You you talk in metrics. I mean, measurable results. So that's a very good arbiter, isn't it? Well, let's let's have a look at this result. So, I get a call from a real estate company. I've done some work with, and the boss rings me up and he says, "Bradley, you know." XYZ, and I said, yeah. She's just had a call from the doctors and said her brother's got COVID, 95% oxygen, in ICU, in a juice coma. He's got 24 hours to live. 
So they're trying to get the priest in to say their last goodbye, but they're not allowed to take the priest in because it's COVID and it's all locked down. So the hospital's getting organised. The guy's lungs are like concrete. So the hospital's getting organised to organise their priest to say their the last goodbyes. I said, just get her to call me. I said, it's done. She rings me. I don't listen to what the doctor says. I said, I need to talk to your brother. She said, he's in an induced coma. I said, I don't care. I said, how long until you can get in the room? He said, she said, five minutes. I said, get me on, put me on FaceTime. Your brother can hear me. I'm on FaceTime. I'm talking to him. And I said, record this. Doctors don't even know what's going on. I said, how long can you be in the room for? She said, the next two hours. I said, have that recording going for the next two hours. The next three hours, it goes from 95% oxygen to 75% oxygen. Out of the induced coma in five days, home recovering after 29. The second COVID patient, exactly the same, 95% oxygen, induced coma, uh, in um, ICU. As soon as I got involved, six days out of the induced coma, home in 22. I'll give you another story. Can I, can I just ask you about that? Because obviously now we're talking in a field where the stakes obviously feel higher than success on a sporting field and so forth. And if I'm understanding you correctly, you're not saying I'm doing something that people might say, oh, he's claiming to be a faith healer or something like that. You're through what you understand through the science. That's true physics. Yeah, physics. To the extent that that is replicable and measurable, what reception, which I think has to be with the partnership of the the medical people who have involved you in these processes, to to be open to this, to see, well, why isn't this in our repertoire to get outcomes? Does that just get, does it just remain at the anecdotal level or are there moves that you can see that we will change and be more open so that becomes out of the, part of the armory for want of a better term <laughs> in dealing with these medical issues. So so if you go into the future, wouldn't it be important that at school, at kindergarten, we teach belief. High school we teach belief. University yeah. we teach belief. So if you've got belief and people believe this is what they've learned on the education to be in medicine, but by doing this, by changing your language and having the belief that you're gonna mix that with what your your medical uh, qualifications are, you're going to get greater results that are going to save patients from dying. Is that not worth doing? Like, for an example, Elon Musk. Which is where I was going to go to next, so that's a great segue. Tell us about that. Okay, so Elon Musk is spending billions and billions of dollars to create a chip to put in the brains of humans. To, to what purpose? I say with some trepidation. Well, I trust that it's in for the benefit of mankind. <laughs> so what he's doing at the moment, he's spending billions and billions of dollars because he knows if he cracks it, it's an over a trillion dollar business. And it's funny, Elon, I'm in Australia, I'm on the Gold Coast, come and see me. What you're spending these billions and billions of dollars on, I've already done it without a chip. Doesn't that tickle your fancy a bit? Get on your private plane and come and see me. Now, listen, Elon, if you are listening, I would like to be part of that summit, if that's possible. If I can be the moderator in the Stubbs-Musk 
Summit. Can I have that role? You friendly? can do that. Elon, I, I see what you're doing, and I think it's absolutely fantastic. You come over here, give me an hour, and, I, and, and we will talk and talk and talk because this is it's, – it's medical breakthrough. It's physics. Physics with medicine. You can actually do it without the medicine. I got stories on stories. I'll give you another one. So a young lady went to the doctor. The doctor said, your placenta is too low. It's one centimetre. So I spoke to Andrew Bissett and I said, okay, so when a woman, a mother's placenta is too low, what do you do to rise the placenta? He said, Bradley, you can't do anything. I said, okay. So I wrote a program and the placenta went to nine centimetres. Wait on. If a doctor says a doctor can't do it, it's not there. Nobody knows how to make the placenta higher. And I wrote a program that actually then she had a natural birth because the doctor said it's too low, you're going to have a cesarean. Well, I got no medicine degree. I just create a program that reprograms the subconscious mind to create new brain cells to heal the body. I had a girl that actually broke an ACL and an MCL. She went to the doctor and the doctor said, Sergio, you'll be out for 12 months. I said, I'll fix it. I wrote a program, created new brain cells to uh, repair the body. Four months, completely healed, done. Each human's got 86 to 100 billion brain cells, 90% of it is subconscious mind. Understand, you can create a program that the cells talk to each other. Interesting. Just that uh, concept of program, can you just explain what you mean by that? This is literally a written um, I can, document I can, to go through, right? I, I can actually write it or I can actually read it. Right. So what it is, it's all about the power words that affect the subconscious mind that increases the blood flow or puts oxygen in the blood flow to make it go faster, but at the same time it releases proteins to the brain. And how much work, is it variable in terms of the program? Like yeah, yeah, it- everyone's different because what i got to do is i got to look and go, okay, that scenario, their energy is this, i got to write it to that. So, for an example, when I worked with Michael Maguire, um, after I started working with him after round 10, five wins, five losses. So that's 15 games. Or one of those is a, uh, a buy and then the finals. About 27,000, 28,000 words. I wrote a program. Wow. And, and there would be an expectation that he would consume that repetitively, yeah? When I ask him, I say, well, are all your players doing their 1%? And they go, yeah. And I go, are you doing all your 1%? Yeah. Are you reading your program in the morning and night? Oh, I'm doing it at night. Are you freaking kidding? You're a freaking hypocrite. You're telling your players to do your 1% and you're not doing your 1%. You're an effing hypocrite. Go back and read them day and night. That's how it works. Sorry. <laughs> and you've got a finger re- relying on that. And look, if you don't mind me saying, here we are at Batuta Advocate in their fine studios and the Stubbs family, a media machine, your lovely daughter Courtney was uh, in the foyer doing uh, media work as well. And I think uh, there was some reference that you wrote to her a program on how to meet a good fella. Yeah. Is that more challenging than um, trying to win a grand final? Well, there's no such thing as challenge. Challenge is a word made of society to give people an excuse. Okay, that's my second 
Right. I got one more strike and I'm right. gone. I'm glad so go back and read my book, The Science of Belief. Whatever somebody gives you as a word, I'll just pass that over here for a sec. Please. Um, there you go. So go back and read it again, right? <laughs> if you want one personally signed, uh, send us an email and it'll be done. But society gives people words to use as an excuse. I don't listen to excuses. If you want to be successful, who remembers second place? Seriously? If I said 15 years ago, who who who, well, who lost the grand, grand final, final the but... AFL or the <laughs> 50, 25 years ago, the World Cup or the NRL? Winning is everything. Everyone's got the ability. Everyone's got the talent in them. The only thing I do is teach someone to use your natural talent of who you are to be successful, and people like to have a go at me. And I and I think that's a beautiful summation of the value that I see in you and the relation that we've had is that it's not about yourself. It's about what you can do for everyone else, which is um, to your absolute credit, Bradley. Now, I, I promise to keep you an hour because you're a busy man. There was one Why not? I got, one, I got one thing. There was one thing I was going to ask, but please, it's your, the floor is yours. Oprah, for over 30 years, Oprah, if you're hearing this in America, over 30 years, I've seen myself meeting you and you doing an interview to the world. Oprah, call me. Call me. I'm telling you. Me, Elon, Oprah, and you, well, maybe I might be the, the odd person out there. Now, Bradley, I'd like to um, thank you so much for taking the time. We, you've, we've covered subject matter we're always talking about on Fire Up, like placenta and vaginal births, those sorts of things. We routinely talk about this on our show. So it's, it's common ground for us. One thing you said, it might be uh, something to uh, not only uh, wrap up the show because I know people will be just wondering when that Oprah slash Musk slash Stubbs summit is going to occur. But you said you had a view of what the future of sport was in society. Well, it's funny. That's, that's a great question. So if you look at sport at the moment with Michael Maguire, Michael Checker, Eddie Jones, I've only done 20% of my programs. With Graham Arnold and Trent Robinson, only 35 to 45% of my programs. Could you imagine if I ever, or if it was ever meant to be, because I'm busy by the universe, to do what I could do with a whole team or a whole organisation? Could you imagine the future will be somebody will buy the licence and they'll pay a lot of money and there'll be a team like the Yankees. When was the last time anyone beat the Yankees? When was the last time that the Sydney Roosters had... Two tries scored against them. Everything's based on science, how to reprogram the subconscious mind. The future, people will buy licenses and they'll pay a fortune and that team will just win and 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 win until the license, they can't afford it. The Coach Whisperer, Bradley Charles Stubbs. Thank you for joining us on Fire Up. I'm glad we got you before Oprah did. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very grateful for your time. Like I said, it took you three years and uh, 10 months, but uh, really appreciate it. I trust you, Chris, and that's why I'm here. Thank you. Cheers, Brad.